Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your, your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was a sunny Saturday afternoon in Michigan Ave in downtown Chicago, and the streets were packed, people shoulder to shoulder. But unlike most folks, I wasn't looking to go into a store, nor was I there to catch any of the sights. I had a mission. And it had everything to do with a specific street corner, okay? You see, for a short stint in seminary, <clears throat> I earned a little bit of extra money on the side by what is called busking, which is just slang for street performing, okay? And if you've ever been down to the plaza or up to City Market on the weekend, you've probably seen one. A busker is anyone who performs as a human still life statue or a breakdancing duo or, you know, of course, musicians, some of which you wish were still life statues. <laughs> and regardless of their talent or the lack thereof, every busker was looking for one thing, an audience. And for me, I knew my audience, okay? It was middle-aged women with cash to burn. <laughs> <laughs> Stay with me for a second. I know how that sounds, all right? I know how that sounds. Stick with me. <clears throat> I knew that if I could find this, this one corner that was highly trafficked by people and was also quiet and yet strategically located next to a coach store, <laughs> I had a shot, okay? And, you know, because what doesn't go great with that perfectly new designer purse but mediocre covers of pop songs by a bearded guy with a smile, okay? <clears throat> <laughs> you know, I had, a, <laughs> I had a persona, all right? And even on my good days, I actually had an audience. <laughs> I don't know if there's any recovering. You know, I thought this was a good idea. That's <clears throat> a great idea. But here's the deal. Every day I went out to the street, every day I went out to the street, it was a battle. It was a battle for me to prove to myself that I had what it takes, a battle to prove to everyone else that I was worth their time, their money, and their praise. And the more I thought about our passage this morning, the more I think that this can so subtly become a dangerous metaphor that describes our lives. And I know this can be true of me, where you wake up in the morning and you look at your job, your relationships, really your whole life almost as one performance after another, always fighting for that almighty praise from whether it be colleagues or family or friends. And then, of course, don't forget now the ever-present, always-watching online audience, right? With a Facebook page to curate, a Twitter handle to maintain, you've got to be posting the right thoughts. You've got to repost the links to the right kinds of events. You have to upload pictures if you're doing the right kinds of things to present an airbrushed persona as a good person. Always pursuing the next audience 
and their almighty praise by clicking the almighty like button. <laughs> and whether it be online or in everyday life, we all know that hunger, don't we? Where we're tirelessly running after a world of applause that finally says you've worked hard enough, that you are indeed good enough. And in the midst of all of that, in all your seeking and your finding, you actually discover that you're losing your soul. Maybe some of you know that feeling all too well. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. And maybe you feel like that's the only option available to us. Well, Jesus knows that about us. And this morning, he points us to a better way of living, a way to actually live free of the demands of the myriad of audiences we engage on a daily basis. Now, to be clear, not that we're free from an audience altogether, but if there's one thing we learned from Jesus this morning, one thing we can take away, it's that the most rewarding life seeks an audience of one. The most rewarding life seeks an audience of one, and not just any particular audience of one, but the most rewarding life seeks an audience with the one. And let me be even more clear to say that that audience of one can't be you, can't be me. Because if there's anything we learn from the philosophers and the poets throughout history, it's that our own applause never satisfies our hearts. We can't be our biggest cheerleaders and that be enough. Instead, if you want to have the most rewarding life that's available to us as human beings, you have to start where Jesus starts in our passage. You have to first admit you have an audience problem. <laughs> not your auntie, not your parents, not your kids, not your neighbors, not your coworkers. You, me, we have an audience problem. And if you haven't already, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 811. And I want us to look together how Jesus describes this audience problem here in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, this first word, beware, it gives us the image of a weary hiker who's already gone ahead of the trail, and he's on his way back, and he's warning, pointing ahead of the pitfalls that still are to come. Jesus is that weary hiker, and he's the most brilliant man who ever lived because he's not merely human. He's fully human, but he's also fully God, and he knows the ways in which we are wired. And he's pointing ahead at the pitfalls such that if you're just seeking to practice your righteousness, to do the right things in order to impress other people, you're never going to find the most rewarding life that's made available to you. And with that kind of as his thesis, his main idea, these next 17 verses, Jesus illustrates and unpacks that idea using three examples that everyone in first century Israel would have recognized as staple qualities of good people. Such that if you would have seen people doing these things, you would have said, oh, they're living a rewarding life. Those kinds of things that maybe on the surface, they looked like they were living everything that God had called them to do. Giving alms to the poor, engaging in poverty relief. They're engaged in prayer. And they even go the extra mile of fasting. But instead of this wholesale affirmation, 
Instead of Jesus just saying, well, why don't you just imitate those who are doing the right things? Instead, Jesus hits the pause button. And he tells us that doing, just doing the right things isn't enough. Just doing the right things isn't enough. And he dives deeper into say that you need the right motivations alongside of doing the right things. And it's here Jesus begins to press us on the issue of hypocrisy, which is one of the most common characteristics of people like us, people who have an audience problem, okay? Now, only a few miles from Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, there was this city called Sepphoris. Sepphoris had a population of about 40,000 people, and it had a very lively amphitheater. And its life and its culture would have cast a shadow over Nazareth. And being a carpenter like his stepfather, Joseph, Jesus and Joseph would have probably, and this is more than just fancy assumption, there's good likelihood that he made his way over to Sepphoris on a regular basis for jobs, for carpentry jobs. And while in Sepphoris, you could hear the cheers of the crowd in the theater. And who would be at center stage of the theater but a hypocrite? Which isn't a pejorative term in that context. A hypocrite was an actor who could change his or her persona at the drop of a dime in order to bring about the crowd's applause. But as soon as you left the theater and entered everyday life, in the same vein that we use the word today, hypocrite was synonymous with fake, artificial, and deceptive. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of hypocrisy? The common way I think about hypocrisy is those who do not practice what they preach, right? And that is very dangerous for all of us. That's a possibility that any one of us could step into. And yet, there's an even more deceptive hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing to here. That even though you could be practicing to the T what you preach, the error lies in pandering to the wrong audience. And pandering to the wrong audience audience. You see, this kind of hypocrisy, it's deep in the heart, hidden from the morality police and the scoffers. And it's so deceptive that we can so easily begin to believe our own performance. And we start having to pay a tax in the depths of our soul just to keep the deception going. How is this possible? Well, let's look at Jesus' three examples he gives us here in our passage. And first, Jesus begins by warning us about giving for the wrong audience. Look with me at chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, believe it or not, this kind of trumpeting of generosity was very common in the first century. It would be kind of like Ryan playing your theme song as you went back to the offering box, you know? <laughs> You're the best around. Nothing's going to ever take you down. Like, that just feels awkward in our culture. I felt awkward doing it, right? And yet we understand what Jesus is getting at. Maybe you've had someone over for dinner. You've bought a coworker lunch. You've given a donation to a cause. You've given your time to come to an event. All so that you can get attention, affirmation from a colleague, 
from a friend, from a family member, from your constituents, fill in the blank, right? And this is why every fundraiser actually knows it's nearly impossible to raise money for building maintenance <laughs> in comparison to raising money to build a new building, which so-and-so can put their name on, dedicated in memory of. And what Jesus is saying is that our generosity, when we give, our right hand shouldn't know what our left hand is doing. Now, that seems weird because it's kind of hard to play hide-and-go-seek with your hands, okay? If you put someone in the corner and say, you can't come out until you stop thinking about a pink elephant, they'll never come out because as soon as you stop trying to think about something, you instantly think about it. What is Jesus talking about? When Jesus is talking about generosity, he's talking about giving without an agenda. He's talking about generosity that's just as natural as speaking your, your first language. You do it without even thinking and, and not even seeking some form of kickback. And you can't do that unless generosity is who you are rather than something you do. Because when it's who you are, it flows out even in the secret places where every writing of the check, every sliding of the card isn't a place of validation, but genuine generosity and giving yourself away without seeking anything in return. And in each one of these moments, Jesus asks the question, so who's your audience? In the midst of your giving, who's your audience? Next, Jesus warns us about praying for the wrong audience. He dives in here at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If like a busker, you know, you've got your corner in life that you love to show off your spiritual prowess, your reward may be a few fleeting raised eyebrows of affirmation, but that's just about as good as it gets when it comes to your reward. And when we get into the habit of doing this with other people, we can actually begin to assume that we can do the same thing with God. We can try to pull these same tactics, which proves we don't understand who God is even in the first place. Look at what he says here at verse 7. And when you pray, then don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do which is his way of saying those who do not know who God is, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when God is the genuine audience of our prayers, the one who knows what we need even before we ask him, we won't come with a stopwatch anticipating that we can twist God's arm by praying for a certain length of time, standing in the right posture, or cycling through a rote structure of prayers, because then he'll finally answer. Then he'll finally pay attention. Instead, what does Jesus give us? We prayed it together this morning as Tyler led us. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he gives this in these two following verses. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Which seems kind of awkward, like it's out of nowhere when Jesus is talking about all of this language of hypocrisy. But it makes perfect sense. You see, Jesus goes directly to the stage of our hearts when it comes to prayer where forgiveness and bitterness duke out. 
And Jesus says, it doesn't matter how lofty you are when you're on the street corners or who you're standing next to in a Sunday gathering. It matters what's going on in your heart. If forgiveness is even given a place to rule, if Christ has been invited to lead and rule there, then prayer has a place to reign. Who's your audience? Who are you talking to when you pray? Forgiveness is a good litmus test as to what is truly going on in your heart in the midst of prayer. Lastly, Jesus gives us one final example when he warns us against abstaining for the wrong audience. I want you to look with me now at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So fasting, in our culture, isn't practiced all too often, um, unless it's a, you know, a Hollywood cleanse or something along those lines. But fasting is abstaining from food, and it can be a helpful spiritual discipline because what you do by the power of the Spirit is you train your will to say no to harmful and destructive things that you've lost self-control over by actually practicing and saying no to things that you think are necessary in your life, like food. Because if you can say no to food that you know you need to survive, how much more can you then say no to things that are destroying you? And this very discipline is meant to be formation for the depths of our hearts, but even here can become toxic when it's twisted to chase applause. This is like posting what you're giving up for Lent on Facebook <laughs> to get a virtual pat on the back when everybody else is just hoping you give up Facebook for Lent, you know? <laughs> it just got real for some of you. Uh. <laughs> and look, these three examples that Jesus gives are genuinely examples, okay? He could have given a whole slew of different opportunities in which we just twist really right practices out of wrong motivations. He could have kept going, like raising your hands while you're singing songs can be a really beautiful expression of surrender to God in the midst of song and worship. It can also be very disastrous for your soul if it's all about focusing attention on you, about garnering applause. Telling your story, your testimony can be edifying to someone else. It can be beautiful, but it can be utterly disastrous if it's all about you and your pride. You should have seen me before Jesus came into my life. Man, was I a mess. I was the worst. No, dude, I was the worst. No, man, I was the worst. No, man. And then all of a sudden, it's like this this competition who's actually better for being worse. It's weird, but yet we do this. It's twisted. And something that was meant to be beautiful becomes toxic for the church. Returning to our first word in this passage of 18 verses, beware. Did you know that this word only shows up one other time in all of the 28 chapters of Matthew? It shows up here when Jesus is emphasizing the danger of a good life that's only skin deep. And then it shows up later when he talks about false teaching. Only two spaces. Wrong motivations, errant theology, wrong teaching. And for Jesus, those go hand in hand. I want you to think about it. If you knew someone, and you probably do, who is generous, they pray passionately, and they're actually pretty engaged in the spiritual disciplines, what would we think of them? We think, of, wow, this is a really good person. And if they're in the church, we start finding ways in which they can lead something. And yet Jesus says, hey, 
if the audience is wrong all the way down in the depths of your heart, in your generosity, in your prayer, in your fasting, fill in the blank, then God couldn't care less. He sees you for who you are, a hypocrite. And here's the kicker. If you have an audience problem, which we all do, which I do, then you're going to have a reward problem. If you have an audience problem, you have a reward problem. Notice how in each passage, Jesus says you will get a reward no matter what. They already have their reward. But the reward that comes for being a hypocrite is anything but rewarding. Let's look through these three rewards of these examples. For starters, if you're just doing the quote-unquote right things in order to be seen by others, then you will become enslaved by others' opinions. You will become enslaved by others' opinions. I mean, how often is our decision-making process began, be, how often does our position, uh, decision-making process begin with, well, I wonder what so-and-so is going to think if I... And we start ticking through our personal list of who's who. And then we finally get somewhere in the process and we go, oh, uh, I wonder what God thinks of this. <laughs> Maybe we get there. I know I'm guilty. And yet, you know, it's amazing just how little God cares about what other people think of you. Now, that, that doesn't mean we have the license to go and be jerks. That's not what Jesus is highlighting here. It's, the point is to sit in the fact that God doesn't have to interview anyone to know who you really are. I want you to look in our passage at verse 4, at verse 6, at verse 18. This phrase shows up over and over. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He sees in secret. Jesus emphasizes that God sees everything. Nothing misses his purview which to some degree is discomforting, <laughs> but in another sense is very comforting because we as people can be the worst, right? <laughs> I mean, just scan Twitter or look at the brutal comments of any sort of YouTube video anywhere, and people just say the craziest of things, and yet we extend so much of our energy trying to impress those same critics. Most of our energy goes to winning people over who have come to slander. Now, one of the hidden rewards when you stop trying to chase after the applause of others is that as you begin to rest in this audience of one, God becomes the head of your PR department. God becomes the head of your PR department. You don't have to go around shouting your good works to be noticed. If you've been with us a couple weeks you, you, and you're a thoughtful reader, you're probably asking the question in Matthew 5, verse 16, hey, I just remember reading something that seems like it's in contradiction with Matthew 6, 1. Let's look at those together. Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. <laughs> For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Wait, is Jesus just very self-contradictory? Is he just a confused old man? What's going on here? Well, Jesus' point isn't that we need to go about intentionally hiding all of our good works. Instead, we should always ask the question of our motivation. Always. Whether we're doing something good in order to be seen as the end good, 
where God's glory is, sh- is stopped short, where we're doing something good in order to be seen as the end good rather than to glorify God our Father, and we become the glory hogs. It all becomes about us, not about God's glory. But when we become the kind of people who exude righteousness, the kind of people that our goal is to glorify God rather than to be seen and praised by others, it makes your good deeds even more beautiful, doesn't it? There's something inherently beautiful when something is done because it is right rather than when something is done so that you notice it and it garners applause. There's just something inherently more beautiful about it, and it will not remain hidden. As God is our witness here, (laughs) he will make it known. And it may not be tomorrow, it may not be today, but when he comes again in his glory, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. God will have his day in his way. Let God be your PR department. Stop being enslaved to the opinions of others. Who's your audience? Which leads us to our second so-called reward for being a hypocrite when you're just doing the right things in order to impress other people. You'll hollow out on the inside. That sounds like a great reward. Sign me up, you know? I'll take my credit card points, and that's my rewards. You know, you will hollow out on the inside. I mean, how often in our society are we encouraged to build up our career, promote and advertise our skills for success, which is not to say that that's a bad thing within a job market, and yet simultaneously in our culture, we're left inarticulate on how to cultivate a deep inner life with the depths of humility and self-confrontation. We've become experts at what David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character, describes as the resume virtues rather than the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are, well, those things you'd put on your resume, right? They're the things that make you look good and attractive in a job market. But the eulogy virtues are just who you are at your core, such that if God were to write your eulogy at your funeral, this is how he would describe you. The kind of person that is brave, courageous, faithful, and compassionate. I mean, so many of us, maybe you fall into this camp, whether you're at work or school or even here at church, can get so focused on posting our resumes that we forget about the eulogies we're writing with our lives. And earlier this week, as I was thinking about this passage, I took some time to even just reframe my thinking and put the resume aside and think about the eulogy I'm writing with my life. And I was kind of shocked at some of the things, if I were to think about writing my manuscript, (laughs) that were going on in my heart. While I was meditating on Jesus' words, this may come as a surprise to you, I was also listening to uh, a song by Macklemore called White Privilege. I know, as soon as I say that word, people shut off. But hang with me, okay? And together in concert, my heart was laid bare by what Macklemore says here. He says, it seems like we're more concerned with being called racist 
than we actually are of racism. Resume versus eulogy, you see? I've heard that silences are action, and God knows that I've been passive. What if I actually read an article, actually had a dialogue, actually looked at myself, actually got involved if I'm aware of my privilege and do nothing at all? And if I was thinking about, okay, in these illustrations, is there one thing in which Scripture celebrates that we as God's people should be about, and our culture simultaneously celebrates as something that's right? And it's the opposition to racism, As the people of God, we should be first in line to oppose the destructive realities of racism. And also our culture comes to recognize this as well. And yet, I had to ask myself afresh, am I more concerned as a white guy with not being seen as racist? Or actually more concerned about battling racism? Because it's easy to hijack one or the other, isn't it? And the words of Macklemore's song, they became questions of my soul. You speak about equality, but do you really mean it? Are you marching for freedom or when it's convenient? Want people to like you, want to be accepted? That's probably why you're out here protesting. Don't think for a second. You don't have incentive. Is this about you? Well, then what's your intention? That was a zing. What about you? Maybe it's not this, but it's something, as we see within Scripture, an illustration that reveals your heart. Jesus, he knows that from our private life comes our public life, not the other way around. That is the movement, an inside-out movement. And our true heart character and motive, it's on display in the very secret intentions of our heart. Are you just living an act? Who's your audience? Are you a golden apple, yet rotten to the core? Which leads us to our final so-called reward for being a hypocrite. For your performance, you're going to get a crowd, Jesus says, no matter what. The problem, though, for being a hypocrite is that you're going to get a lot of critics, but no father. You will get a lot of critics, but no father. You see, Jesus goes out of his way to talk about God as Father here. If you read through these 18 verses 10 times, Father, 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 which that can completely miss us because we're so used to that in our culture at this point in salvation history. And we can miss just how revolutionary this is that Jesus is saying the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, whose very name, if we take it in vain, is worthy of death. Jesus radically calls him Father and invites everyone to do the same who follows Jesus. And he presents us with a choice. You can either chase after the audiences that surround you and try to pander to the critics, or you can live before your Father knowing that the most rewarding life seeks an audience of one, of the one, your father, who simultaneously, ironically enough, teaches you to love your critics rather than just listen to them. Hmm? Now hear me, your heavenly father, he's easy to please. He's more loving and gracious than any single person you've ever met or read about in history. He makes Mother Teresa look like Hitler, okay? And this... 
right? And this is exactly why your father is also simultaneously so hard to satisfy. Because when you're ready to call it quits, when life just gets too hard, when love is too difficult and you want to throw in the towel, God, our Father, keeps pursuing our good. He's the kind of Father who rejoices and celebrates over mediocre generosity, bumbling prayers, and even these baby steps of devotion to Him. But none of that satisfies Him because He's so much more zealous for our good than we ever are. Praise God. He's the kind of God we read about in John that who loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son to take our criticism upon himself. He was born into a scandal, inviting ridicule from religious leaders. He chased after, he invited, he hung out with the people that the rest of society rejected. When his own followers scoffed at him for embracing the outrage of a cross and dying, he confronted them and challenged each and every one of us to now pick up our cross and follow him. He loved his oppressors even when they tried to trap him. He was silent when the guards whipped him. He extended mercy when the city shouted, crucify him. And he stayed focused when the crowds mocked him. All as living before one audience. The light of the world who entered the world and the world knew him not and embraced the very darkness of death within himself, and not even the flames of hell could extinguish his life. And three days later, he was vindicated before all of creation and his resurrection. Forty days later, ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. The ultimate descent of condemnation, which led to the ultimate ascent of exaltation and reward. All for us. This is who he is, that we might now live from acceptance and embracing the gospel rather than for acceptance. And in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's your audience? Do you know that the most rewarding life seeks an audience of one, of the one? And when it's this one, why would you try any other? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I know I'm not alone when I say that I far too often seek to do the right things out of wrong motivations and so miss the joy of living the life you've called us to in all of its beauty. God, we ask for your forgiveness. That we would be following you in the depths of our heart such that it becomes who we are rather than something we do on the surface. That hypocrisy would be far from us. That we would not only practice what we preach but do so before an audience of one. 
And so know the joy that one day all wrongs will be made right. And all your people who may have been misunderstood, unknown, will finally be seen as you are. That one day your vindication will come when you are in charge of our PR department, when you and your glorious timing will make your people shine like bright lights and be salty. God, may we trust you. May we seek you. May we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.